As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am not Michael Walker, and with me is not Mark Bigney. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing great. Not Mike Mark Walker. Mike. <laughs> Clearly, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. Not Mike Walker. This is far too confusing, obviously, for such feeble minds as ours. Oh, my goodness. I have some important news about democracy, because it's been a very troubling time over the past few weeks, and I think it's important to acknowledge, as I have in a number of other venues, to acknowledge that times are weird and it's okay to feel weird. And we had a hotly contested election in which we've decided our future, and our future is going to be reviewing the castles of Tuscany. And some people might be observing, they might look at the vote tallies that's up on Patreon, and they might say, ah, but Sucker Arms has more votes. Well, there are two possible explanations for this. Number one, when we made the decision to review the castles of Tuscany, it was actually winning the vote tally at that time. And at that point, we couldn't go back. Well, we accidentally announced that the Castle of Tuscany had actually won. It was called by it was CNN. Called, it was called too early. Yeah. And then, yeah. The other possible explanation, if you're so inclined, is that Sakura Arms may have won the popular vote but that the Castles of Tuscany won the Electoral College. There you so, go. with that in mind, our feature game this week is going to be the Castles of Tuscany, but before we get to that, Walker, we are going to be talking about the games we played last week, and also the news and why it doesn't matter. So, with that in mind, let us proceed into the games we played last week. Walker, what did we play last week? Well, I played Welcome to New Las Vegas. It's another uh, roll and write by the same people who did Welcome to. Well, you know, roll and write as in draw and write. In this game, you're opening shows in this new Las Vegas that you're, you're building strips of, of this new Las Vegas. You're opening shows. You're organizing limo rides. You're completing constructions of your casinos. And you get to also increase your end game scoring conditions. There's all diff- a whole bunch of different things that score at the end of the game. And you can make that more worth more and more depending on, you know, so certain cards will come up and you can do it. I thought it was very interesting. I liked it much more than I, than I like Welcome to. Why is that? I, I don't know. I'd welcome to seem just boring, you know, circling pools and 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 doing such things. I just I seem to gravitate to this more. Seemed more engaging and more stuff to do. Did it change any of the fundamentals? Was it still just pull a card, everyone crosses something out? Yes. Okay. It was pull three cards, take your choice, and each card had a special ability assigned to it. So you you'd have to pick a set of cards. Sure. So you're either, like I said, opening a show and you're trying to get, you know, rows of... I, I only played Welcome To once. Were, were you trying to get odd rows and even rows in Welcome To as well? The thing is, is that Roland Wright's ha- uh, fall into a haze of convoluted yeah, scoring that's what I mean. That's why I couldn't remember. So in this one, that is what you're trying to do. You get points if you get a nice run of odd numbers and a nice run of even numbers per strip. I so, see. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. I, I 
enjoy playing it, you know, online because it seems people are fairly interested in it, so you can get the game off pretty quickly. Oh, I see. So you're playing with randos online. Yes. Ah, well, if you're going to play a game with randos online, you might as well play a game with no player interaction. There you exactly. Yeah. No, and I mean that sincerely. Like. <laughs> no, 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 I'm I'm 100 on where where you can pick where everyone picks at the same time and it just goes on to the next one. You know, it goes through fairly quickly. I played Escape the Dark Sector. Escape the Dark Sector is a quasi sequel to Escape the Dark Castle. This is a solo slash co-op adventure thing designed by Alex Crispin, Thomas Pike, and James Shelton. And it's illustrated by Alex Crispin. And this is worth emphasizing because the visuals of Escape the Dark, well, both Sector and Castle, are very striking. They're black and white, and the art is very engaging and helps to sell the setting. And there's just the right amount of flavor text. There's just the right amount of narrative because solo games at their heart are often some version of, well, just a parody of a roll and write. You flip something over and then a whole bunch of dice rolling ensues. Or you have to fill in some sort of spreadsheet. In this context, what happens in Escape the Dark Sector is you build the aforementioned Dark Sector, which is a space station from which you're escaping. I generally prefer sci-fi over fantasy. That's why I tried Dark Sector rather than Dark Castle. You get some sort of inventory bit. And then there's either a simple dice check or a slightly more convoluted combat encounter. And every character has their own custom dice. Every weapon type has its own custom dice. The enemies have their own custom dice. They also have custom hit dice. And then there are custom explosion dice. So That's a lot of dice. There's a lot of different kinds of dice. And it's very satisfying if you enjoy custom dice. And they're these big chunky things. I really liked the combat system. It was actually rather quite clever. There's this two-stage resolution element. There's ranged combat and then possibly melee combat. And there are these special actions that you can accomplish in ranged combat, either a flanking maneuver and or using the medical bot, which will heal you a little bit. And each of these can be used once per fight. But the problem is, in order to use them, somebody else has to be distracting the enemy. And all of this is done very, very simply and cleverly. Like it's, it's, There's not even an no, abstracted notion of maneuver or situations or placements. It's just the, the notion that if anybody doesn't actively engage in ranged combat, ranged combat immediately ends and you proceed to melee combat, which is much more deadly for both sides. And it's not the deepest thing in the world. There's not a whole lot of trade-offs. It's mostly just about managing your precious hit points as they, they dwindle downwards because you lose once one of your crew member dies. But it's cute, it's flavorful, it's very quick, it's got a little bit of a narrative hook, and it's got clever dice elements. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a solid, solitaire game. I don't know whether I'd want to play it with a full complement of four. That might seem to push it past the length that it would want to be, because at the moment where you're discussing everything in committee, decision starts to stretch out in, in ad infinitum. And with two, I think it'd be fine, and both players could control two characters or not. Anyhow... It was a very, very nice diversion, and it definitely was not taxing in the way that I want solo games to avoid. So it you didn't have a huge component sprawl, so you didn't feel like you were just managing components the entire time. Nor was there a whole lot of upkeep so that you would forget to do various phases. And so in terms of what I like for a quick 30 to 45 minute solo game, Escape the Dark Sector was absolutely what I'm looking for. And the amount of card variety ensures that no two runs are going to be the same. Now, they're substantially going to be the same because you're going to be doing, you know, checks in combat. But it does the combat reasonably well and the checks are flavorful enough. So I'm willing to forgive all these things. Escape the Dark Sector, I was very, very pleasantly surprised by, and I would definitely try again. Nice. I played a nice another filler on Board Game Arena called Via Magica. Now, this is like a bingo-type game. It's designed by Palomori, and it's uh, published by Hurricane Games. I love that Palomori. So this one is very interesting, Mark. You have these, I guess you just call them different spells or contracts or whatever you want to call them. They all have different schools of magic, and there's a different mix of these schools in the bag that you're drawing from. So you pull a green chit or a red chit and they're going to be, you know, rare or not rare. And then everyone decides to take a crystal and put it on the school of magic on their cards. Right. It's a roll and write. Yes. It's sort of like a roll and write, <laughs> roll and write bingo. Right. Yeah. But so you have to, so when, once you when you pick your initial cards or when you pick a new card, you got to make sure you have a proper mix, right? You can't just concentrate all in one. And then, and you have a certain number, a uh, limited number of crystals that you can place on the card. So you can't just, you know, spread them out and, you know, complete them all at once. And the, when you do complete them, you can get just either straight up victory points, or you're going to have things that will help you fill out the cards more, or they're going to have some multipliers for the score at the end. Now, the only problem I written, and ever, all of this is really interesting and fun and goes very quickly. Cause much like the other game I talked about, welcome to everyone picks at the same time and it 
goes on at a fairly good clip. But when you run out of crystals and a chit comes up, it allows you just to pull a crystal off another card and move it to where you want it. And there is no penalty for this. And I really wish there was some sort of penalty. I think it really would have brought the game all together and sort of, you know, penalized you and made it more tight and more interesting if it, if there was a, you know, a penalty for... Had some tension in terms of placing something because you didn't know if Exactly, you, you know. yeah, you concentrate too much on one card or you didn't have the proper, you know, balance of cards in front of you. But other than that, I really enjoyed it. I'm going to play it some more, I think. And that's Via Magica. I'll try anything by Paolo Mori, that's for sure. Talked a little bit last week about the strange session we had of Cthulhu Death May Die that morphed into a session of Keyflower, while this time we returned to Death May Die, and it stayed Death May Die. Once again, we played our absolute favorite scenario possibly of any game ever, where you're dynamiting a UFO with moose, because that's how you dynamite a UFO. I don't even think you have to say that, isn't that? It's a given. It's the established delivery mechanism for dynamite to a UFO. Maybe it's a a Canadian thing. Well, everyone in the broader moose enthusiast community knows this. True. And this was with Huey and Louie, and we had a great time. We are very much in favor of Cthulhu Death May Die, and I'll say the same thing that I always say about it. It's just the right level of stupid. And it was, again, this scenario that really emphasized that Rob Davio and Eric Lang knew that they were designing something that was, and again, I mean this as a compliment, pretty dumb. And this is despite the fact that it, the some of the more fiddly elements of Cthulhu Death May Die reared its head, namely one of the characters was a pyromaniac, and fire is absolutely the way to sap enthusiasm or momentum out of many games. This is the lesson that I think Eric Lang learned from the others. Fire is bad. It's, this, it's, the, it's the Frankenstein theory of game design, fire bad. And Cthulhu Death May Die is good insofar as it avoids fire. But in this case, the fire worked out kind of okay because we had a pyromaniac, lunatic, sorceress young girl who hurled herself at Yogg-Sothoth and uh, all that we heard was maniacal laughing and then nothing. Eerie silence. It was a great heroic sacrifice because, again, the tempo of Death May Die is wonderful. Once the Great Old One shows up, character death is no longer a loss condition. And the timing always seems to work out just about perfectly. Yes, it results in player elimination, but usually by that point, there's one or two more rounds left in the game's max. And in this case, it was the very last turn of the game. And there was a heroic sacrifice. We'll call it heroic, even though she seemed to have a a, a little bit of a sadomasochistic glint in her eye, but we'll call it heroic anyway. And it was absolutely wonderful. I am looking forward to exploring yet more of the scenarios. We still haven't played all the scenarios. There's still tons left, uh, left to explore in Death May Die. And all the combinations are interesting to explore. I will say this. I'm developing a preference for some great old ones over others. And the one we played against the aforementioned Yogg-Sothoth seems a little bit too easy. Yogg-Sothoth drops these artificial gates, which increase the spawning rate of a variety of bad guys. But the problem is, the force pool of a lot of the monsters is so small that it's often not an issue. For example, if you've only got two Migos available, one of them is already on the board, and you pull an event card that says Spawn Amigo, it doesn't matter that you have three artificial gates that say Spawn More Amigos because there's no more Amigos to be had. I approve of the fact that there are no additional rules for what happens when you try to spawn something and can't. Those rules often tend to be a little bit fluky. I don't want to condemn them all, but some of them tend to be unsatisfying. But at the end of the day, Yogg-Sothoth's extra gates don't really add a whole lot of threat. In the same way that, say, the Black Goat of the Woods, Dark Young, really do add threat because it, the Dark Young just start multiplying and it's really awkward. Anyway, all of that having been said, it's one of our favorite games of the let's get some dice together and kill things genre. It's really well done, and some of the scenarios just have a marvelous sense of humor. Yet more experience with Cthulhu Death May Die. All right, Mark, you and I got to play a great game from Pandasaurus Games, designed by Casper Lapp. I have two questions for you. Okay, I'm ready. The first question is... Do you remember the other design by Casper Lap that you have played? No. I'll, it'll come up later. The second gotcha. question is, if it's by Pandasaurus, were dinosaurs involved? One always 100%. Good to know. I think that's a, a given for them. It's, yes. It must have dinosaurs in it somewhere. So in Gods Love Dinosaurs, because we all know gods love dinosaurs, you create this really cool puzzly ecosystem, right? And you have all these little rats and bunnies and frogs leaping around. And of course, now they're eaten by the predators, and then the master predator, the Tyrannosaurus rex dinosaurs, eats anything it wants to. But if it does eat the predators, then you get points, and points are what you need to buy prizes, and prizes mean you win. (laughs) 
And it's a great puzzle. I, I really enjoy it. It's like it's you're picking these tiles and when a certain column expires, then that stuff activates and you got to make sure you have enough uh, enough uh, prey so the predators can eat it. And you got to have make sure you have enough predators so the dinosaurs can eat those to get you points and they can and all the movement restrictions, all the movement restrictions are very interesting and not, you know, overly complicated. And the game moves at a great rate, you know, it doesn't not overly busy or anything like that. I just Everything about it is great. It's not overly, I don't want to say it's a heavy game. I don't want to say it's, you know, one that's going to stay, you know, come to the table all the time, but it's been a, it's been a nice little game for us to play lately. So I've read a lot in theology. I studied a little bit of it in university and specifically uh, theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, which uh, is, you know, reconciling the problem of evil with the existence of God. And one thing that I, I, I neglected to consider, you know, rejecting the Leibnizian notion that we live in the best of all possible worlds, what if divinity has erected the universe simply so as to maximize the total number of dinosaurs, in which case we would probably be living in a divinity's relatively poor game of gods of dinosaurs, because it hasn't been a good run for the dinosaurs lately. So anyway, the, the, the theological implications of God, gods of dinosaurs I find fascinating. I will point out that this is a very, very minor gripe, but it does annoy me. They don't quite know how to use apostrophes over a Pandasaurus because in both the rulebook and on the back of the box, they've inserted the errant apostrophe, changing the title of the game from God's Love Dinosaurs to God is Love Dinosaurs, which is a different theological statement. But anyway, unless there's some person named Love Dinosaurs who thinks they're God, which would solve the matter entirely. It's true. Kind of like the premier of British Columbia, Amour de Cosmos. Yeah. Real person, Amour de Cosmos, Premier of British Columbia. Look it up. Anyway, I agree with you. Gods love Cosmos. Uh, Gods love Cosmos? <laughs> Dinosaur Amour de Cosmos is a wonderful, wonderful game. It's not really so much about the tiling, although it is a little bit about the tiling. It's mostly about drafting, because as you say, there's this issue of when do animals activate. Every animal has their own column, which is purely notional. When that column is gone of, uh, with tiles, the animals activate. But you have to be very, very careful. Are rats going to activate? when either all your rats are extinct or all your rat spaces are occupied, or is it going to activate just when you want it to, and therefore you're going to go from three rats to six rats, which is going to make your tigers and eagles very, very happy. And those issues of tempo and trade-offs, well, this is the tile that I want, but it's under the column that I don't want to activate yet, is delicious. I was a little concerned because we played it twice. We played it with two players, just the two of us, and then we played it with four. I was right. Is it going to feel too long with four? Nope. Because the game length scales linearly, but you're right, it's a delightful little puzzle. It's a very, very simple ecosystem, but you have to be very careful about stewarding the, the relative populations of all these animals. Yeah, like the theme permeates through the whole game. You know, you have the feeling of, you know, keeping the balance of your little ecosystem, and I love that. I did feel as though it it felt a little more chancy with four players because the tiles disappeared. But sort of made it feel a little more tight. You know, it's like you really wanted that one tile and you had to wait for three more players, whether you're going to get it or not, or things were going to activate out of your control, unlike it was in two players. But I think it still played very well. It's strange. With four players, there's the theoretical possibility of a column to empty out without you having had any input or before you've been able to claim the first tile, because there's three column, three tiles to a column with four players. And so theoretically if players one, two, and three all take from the same column. That never manifested itself, though. And I wonder how likely that's actually to happen in actual gameplay. Suffice to say, I'm keen to find out. I feel as though the opposite happened. Like, when we were playing two players, we tended... The dinosaur... The dinosaur... Like, a dinosaur only activates when you empty a column that the dinosaur is in. And I felt when you and I played, he activated a lot more often. Whereas there was a couple times in our four-player game, the whole board was practically empty. That is true before someone activated the dinosaur and then we'd have to refill almost the entire board. And did you find that dynamic less pleasant or more no, pleasant? No, not at all. It was fine. I just thought thought it was a weird difference between the mm. two the two ways we played. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued. Uh it's a it's a you're right. It's a wonderful little puzzle. It's not really a spatial puzzle so much. There's a little bit of that because you need to be careful about the tile placements, it's not purely about the drafting, because the dinosaurs always have to end on mountain spaces, and so you have to start worrying about the paths that your dinosaurs can take while eating just the right number of predators. If you eat too many, then you might decimate the population and it'll take you too long to regrow. And at the same time, you des- you, de- you definitely don't want your dinosaurs to eat rats, bunnies, and frogs. I mean, they will. Dinosaurs will eat anything. This is well known. Why and that, bother? And that's because your predators have to eat as well. Yes. And you don't want your predators to eat all the prey because then you have to build them back up as well. It's this 
fantastic balance. It's It really is quite neat with a very, very light rule set and very approachable and very whimsical and delightful theme with lovely components. I'm keen to play some more. I think it's just the right weight for what it's trying to do. I have a final pointed question to you to return back to the intro. After the dinosaurs activate, because the dinosaurs activate at the same time as some arbitrary animal and it shifts every round, uh, the dinosaur moves right. Would you say that moving right is a game? Yes, just moving left is not a game. Okay, Casper Lap also designed Magic Maze, which is Walker's all-time favorite game. Oh, did he really? <laughs> Interesting. I didn't really enjoy Magic Maze, but that's largely because it's a purely spatial puzzle. It's like Ricochet Robots, the co-op version, which is just not for me. It's not the kind of thing that I enjoy. But the kind of puzzle about timing and a little bit of spatial element that God's Love Dinosaurs presented, I thought was great. So Casper Lap is very, very clever, and I've appreciated both his designs. I'm just glad that I could enjoy this one as well. Plus, Tyrannosaur Rex goes wherever he wants. 100%. Exactly. He doesn't just go left. Well, in this case, the T-Rex only goes right. (laughs) And that's God's Love Dinosaurs. We played another session of Pandemic Legacy Season Zero, and just to be entirely frank, we're not really going to be talking about it anymore in substance in this podcast because, while speaking personally, I don't know of how to talk about it without spoilers. And we have a very strong no-spoiler policy here on the podcast, and that's one of the reasons why, as we discussed last week, we are going to be hiving off our discussion of Pandemic Season Zero into a new bi-weekly show uh, called the, tentatively entitled The Cure Chronicles, but check on that later i played a game called letter tycoon designed by brad brooks and published by breaking games mark you might say that i cannot enunciate very well well i'll I'll tell you something i spell even even worser (laughs) so i'm not a big fan of word games but i mostly will play any game once just to see if there's any interesting mechanics and this one You get this hand of letters, and then there's a pool out on the board that everyone can use, and you're trying to spell these words with your cards and the common pool, and it will give you a certain number of points, which will give you money, so you can buy these, I don't know how they word it, either contracts or the rights to letters. So you (laughs) you buy those letters, and now they're your letters. Okay. And if anybody else uses those letters, then they have to, you either get money or they pay you money, and then you know, most money at the end of the game will win. Fascinating. Yeah, it's it's interesting little word game, you know, if you're tired of Scrabble or any of these other things. I guess it's, it's a nice deviation, but word games are just not my thing, that's for sure. Fair enough. I actually, on the topic of puzzles that I don't like, in theory, I like word games. I like games like Scattergories where you're encouraged to think of new novel instances of a certain concept under certain constraints. But games like Scrabble, games like Bananagrams, Games of that sort, the anagram games. Anagram games don't do anything for me because they don't feel to me like playing with language. They feel to me like playing with letters in a puzzly type way. Oh, yes. Anything with wordplay, I love. I love those games. But anything to do with like actual spelling, like Boggle, Scrabble. Right. <laughs> I think we're of the same mind on that one, although I didn't try that one. That's Letter Tycoon. We played Terror in Meeple City, or as is known in the edition that I have, Rampage, which they had to change because it is obviously treading on Midway's copyright of the game Rampage, where giant monsters destroy a city, as opposed to Rampage, where giant monsters destroy a city. So, Rampage slash Terror in Meeple City was designed by Antoine Bouza and Ludovic Maublanc, two of my favorite French designers. And it's a dexterity game with beautiful components where you go and stomp around a city. And I don't know why I don't love it. Well, the rules were were pretty loose and goosey, yeah, as they usually are for dexterity games. There was I, there was just very very little choice. You know, the, the the obvious move was always there pretty well, I think, and and it put a lot of emphasis on points and winning. You know, where other games are or more about the shot. This is more about you know making sure you get the right you know sequence of meeples or something like that. Ah. You know what I mean, it just seemed. Whereas, you know, more games, there's, there wasn't that, like, that one really cool shot or that one, you know, where you line it up. It seemed more fluky, in my opinion, right? Because you're doing, like, mid-air shots. You're never, like, coasting along the ground where you could do an interesting bank shot or anything like that. It was all just sort of freehand, I just happened to, you know, get it right type fluke shot. Well, you generally have a long-standing preference for flicking games where you can flick something as hard as you want and not worry too much about the consequences. And if anything, while I'm not sympathetic to that, 
I am somewhat sympathetic to the fact that there are a lot of things in Rampage that discourage you from outright destruction. So, for example, you're trying to eat meeples, which is great and it's thematic, and you're trying to destroy buildings, but as components leave the board, you get penalized. If you go off the board, you lose points. That part I'm fine with. But if meeples fly off the board, which they're going to happen, I think the word you, you used, fluky, is quite right, which happens semi-randomly, uh, it means you can't destroy the buildings with gusto. You have to be careful, and you have to make sure that they land close to you and stuff like that. I don't want to be a conservative giant monster. That, that, that doesn't do it for me. The art is incredibly charming. The setup is beautiful. You have these lovely little buildings that are held up by meeples. We have the addition with stickers on the meeples, so you can identify what kind of meeples they are. And I enjoy it, but not a lot, which is so frustrating for me. I find Rampage slash Terran Meeple City to be very, very frustrating in that I don't absolutely love it. Its limitations, I think you're right to identify some of its limitations in terms of the obviousness of the play, the narrowness of the scoring conditions. It's like, oh, I've got 25 meeples, but I don't have a full set of the six colors, so those 25 meeples are worth nothing. Ultimately, it's it's a frustrating experience. I played it a number of times over the years. I had I got it when it first came out in 2013, and I've played it several times since. And every time it comes to the table, I'm like, this is great. See the cards. This is all wonderful. Set up the board. Everyone, everyone's so enthusiastic. And then the enthusiasm just starts to wane as time goes on. It's so disappointing. It's not terrible. I would play it if put in front of my face. But I'm just disappointed that it's not a, a home run. It's true. It's odd because like all of the elements are there, right? You get to throw buses at each other. It has this really cool mechanism where you get to fight each other and you have teeth that you're exchanging back and forth. And that like reduces how many meeples you could eat. I thought that was all very interesting, but... Like you said, it just very quickly was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It, it, honestly, it's one of one of my bigger frustrations over the course of the past decade, really. I, I want to love Rampage more than I do. And I've, I've mostly enjoyed the time that I've spent with it. But given the design pedigree and given the visual appeal, it's one of the more frustrating misses of the past little while. And that's Rampage slash Terror in Meeple City. All right. You and I got to play Sacra Arms again. Sacra Arms Dueling Under Falling Cherry Blossoms. So just one of the most stunning looking games that I think I've ever played. And I've, I've already talked about it, so I'm not going to talk about it too much over. It's designed by Back of Fire and published by Back of Fire Party. And AEG and Level 99. So all I'm going to say is that if you ever decide to learn Sacra Arms, stick with the same characters a few times. Because instead of, you know, struggling with learning the rules and struggling with learning new characters, you just need to play the same characters over and over again to lock those down before you, you know, branch out and try new stuff. That would be my advice. It's strange. Some people take to some rule sets quicker than others. And some people take to certain conceptual architectures faster than others. And for whatever reason, the keywords of Sacker Arms just don't gel with you. And some of the distinctions are a little bit subtle, right? Like the distinction between an all-out attack and a throughout attack and a terminal attack. And these, of course, are the terminologies used by the fan translations done by the Superstar. I don't know how Level 99 is going to mess with the things. And my general dissatisfaction with a lot of decisions that Level 99 has made can be found in an editorial I published uh, last week. But some of these are a little subtle, and it's not fun for either player to constantly be like, no, no, that card doesn't work the way you thought it did. It works some other way. Well, I think it's mostly the fact that keywords usually help you do something, whereas the keywords in my case were restrictions. Were, were things that you couldn't do, yes. Yes, yes. There was one in particular you were playing with Hagane, and who has a large hammer, and Hagane's deck is almost invariably designed around one massive attack she has, which can only be played if you have backed up a certain distance. Now again, and I, I can't help but feel that part of the fault is mine, when you took Hagane, I probably should have got the card out and said, this is her thing. This is how it works. And sure enough, from my perspective playing Sacra Arms, it was, as always, a wonderful experience. I, I, I love the hell out of Sacra Arms. And one of the reasons why was because I knew just enough about Hagane's deck to know that that card was there and that you probably took it. Because, quite frankly, the numbers are huge and it makes sense to take it. True. It's a centrifuge. I thought it would be something like stun and or, you know a keyword that once I did it, then we'd, you'd say, and this is also going to happen to me as well. You know, it's going to be like, well, a, it does. It, it, that part is printed on the card, right? Because it says after this attack hits, both players discard all their, uh, their hands. Well, under, yeah. Well, under, under the 
you know, where it tells you what Centrifuge does. No, no, that that, that effect is on the card. Oh, is it on the card? Yes. Okay. Centrifuge is the one that says you can't play this attack if you've played an attack prior this turn, and the distance needs to be too higher than it was at the start. And you quite reasonably misunderstood the card as saying you, the distance needs to have changed to, because you naturally thought, oh, I need to charge to use this, which is a reasonable inference. That's how it would work in many instances. But from my perspective, my knowing only a little bit of a Hagane. I've never played Hagane, but I know the card. I know a little bit about all the cards because I had to sleeve them all. And I had to put in the inserts for all the translations. Thank you, Superstar. I knew that it was a 5-3 attack. And the way Sakura Arms works is if you have enough in your aura, which is kind of like a blade of armor, you can take the damage there. If not, you take it to life, which is bad because you only have 10 life. So I'm like, I have to stay at 5 aura. I have to stay at 5 aura. I have to stay at 5 aura. So you would be hitting me with these 3-1 attacks, these 1-1 attacks, and thinking, I can't, oh. <laughs> and sure enough, you waited until I was down to 4 aura, and then you smacked me with the 5-3. So as a result, despite the fact that I landed, I think, easily twice as many attacks on you as you did on me, that blow was pretty decisive, and I ended up winning by one health point, <laughs> which was <laughs> quite astounding. Also this week, I played more BattleCon Unleashed. And so people have been asking about a sort of a comparison between the level 99 card battlers. So just as a sort of coda to the discussion about Sakura Arms, one of the things that differentiates Sakura Arms from BattleCon is, number one, you do deck construction. And to me, the deck construction in Sakura Arms is just the level of deck construction that I want. Here's a set of about two dozen cards build your deck out of those two dozen cards. It's kind of similar to the way deck constructions worked in Aristea. Here's four cards, pick two of them. That part I love. It's just the right level of customization. It's not the way it's done in, say, Unmatched. In Unmatched, here's your character, they get the deck. Pfft, you're done. And I'm fine with that, but it's not the level of customization that that really sells a game to me. Similarly, in Warhammer Underworlds, here's a universe of 50,000 cards. Pick any 20 of them is not exactly newbie-friendly and not the kind of level of engagement that I'm looking for at this point in my gaming career, which is one of the reasons why I don't play One Armor Underworlds anymore. It's a bit of a shame, but, you know, it, it has a demand on me that I can't meet. In BattleCon, you similarly don't have any deck construction. Same thing with BattleCon Exceed. In BattleCon Exceed, you just have a deck, and in BattleCon, you just have your, your, your pair of cards. Another salient difference, and this is one of the reasons why I think Sakura Arms is actually more accessible than BattleCon, is that in Sakura Arms, there's a lot less of you messing with somebody on their turn. When it's my turn, there's a very, very small number of things that you can do to interrupt what I'm doing. There are reactions, yes, and they do mess with you, but they're by far the subset and a minority. Whereas in BattleCon and BattleCon Exceed, it's not really good for players with a low th frustration threshold, because a lot of the game is just preempting whatever the opponent's trying to do. Oh, I'm going to get out of range of you, so your attack that you, that you played won't work. I'm going to stun you before you got to go because I'm going so quickly. Oh, I have so much armor on this attack that it doesn't matter how hard you hit me. I'm going to hit you back for more. And I enjoy that. I very much enjoy that gameplay. But it does lead to frustration when you're losing badly because every turn just nothing happens. Whereas in Sacra Arms, in my experience, and Walker can chime in on his experience on this as well, you at least get to do something on your turn. Agreed. In, 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 and in Bauticon, when you're trying to learn the game... And you're and you're thinking, okay, I'm finally going to be able to do something, and it's constantly being stopped, or you know, and in and in different ways, it, it really, you know, when you're trying to learn, hinders you quite a bit. Absolutely, I am by no means an expert in BattleCon. I get thrashed by people who've played before all the time. My win rate is probably somewhere around twenty to thirty percent amongst people who really enjoy BattleCon and have only even played it about half a dozen times. But when teaching a new player. It's not fun for the new player, and it's not fun for the rules explainer to say, okay, well, this turn, your attack doesn't work for the third of five possible reasons. It's frustrating and unfortunate. I feel bad, they feel bad, it's just awkward. Very rare is the kind of masochism on the part of a gamer where it's like, ooh, this is why I failed this time? This is fascinating. And I really respect people that are able to do that. Dr. Stallone is able to do that, for example. It's one of the things that, that makes him a great gaming partner and a really interesting intellect because he, he, he really enjoys being frustrated because he feels he has new opportunities to grow. I'm not that big a person, and very few people are, so it's a whole thing. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I love BattleCon. 
But overall, between Battlecon and Sacker Arms, I think Sacker Arms has a slight edge in terms of accessibility and customizability. What Battlecon definitely has is fascinating subsystems. At this point, if you include the promos that are now no longer fully supported, you're talking about a hundred different characters, and every character in Battlecon feels more distinct to me than every character in Sacker Arms, which at this point only has about 20 characters and a handful of alternate variants, of which 18 will be supported by level 99 at launch. Again, more on this in, in other venues. And so that is great. I feel like I will never do more than scratch the surface of what's available in Battlecon Unleashed, the full version. And that universe is one that I absolutely am going to be exploring for years to come. And I'll still be playing Sacker Arms as well. But in terms of Sacker Arms, I feel like there's less variety net-net in terms of the game. Which is okay, because it still has tons of variety. So that's my sort of big-picture, 30,000-feet view of the difference between Battlecon Unleashed and Sacker Arms. And as far as Exceed is concerned, I have much, much less experience with Exceed. For two reasons. Number one, I don't enjoy the random draw element. Both Sacro Arms and Battlecon in different ways have very, very little luck of the draw involved. In Sacro Arms, your deck is so small that when you have the card to draw is, is not going to be a huge deal. And in Battlecon, there's no luck of the draw at all. It's just pure double-guessing, rock, paper, scissors kind of thing, which some people parse as luck and some people don't, which is a fascinating psychological thing, but setting that aside. In Exceed, you're drawing from a deck. So do you have the attack that's available to you? Is an additional level of double-guessing, which I don't really appreciate. And it is so frustrating in Exceed when you attack somebody with a carefully planned attack and they just top deck as a response and the top deck response beats you. I hate it when that happens. And the... The Exceed pros will tell you, well, you shouldn't have done that then, which I don't find a satisfying response. No. The second reason that I never really got into Exceed is because it has always been a licensed product, and none of the licenses have really appealed to me for a variety of reasons, partially because most of the artwork of women in Exceed has been terrible. The first set was embarrassingly bad. The second set was actually pretty good, the 7th Cross thing, and that wasn't even a license. That's the in-house level 99 thing. But by that point, the ship had sailed, and I was already knee-deep in Battlecon. Then the Street Fighter stuff comes out, and I was get to be reminded once again about how bad women are represented in Street Fighter. And oh my gosh. And now we're into Blaze Blue, which is fine. I don't really like Blaze Blue. It's not my thing. Put out a King of Fighters series, and pointedly don't include my Shiranui level 99, and you will have my undying devotion. But <laughs> that is what it is. Setting all that aside, that's why I don't really have as much to say about Exceed. So, as far as two-player card battling games go that roughly kind of sort of almost but not really duplicate fighting game experiences, we are spoiled for choice. And they're all quality designs. I encourage you to go experiment with all of them. And they all have really quality online implementations through Tabletop Simulator. Go forth and experiment. Drown in the variety. Decide which one is for you. And it really is a great time to, to enjoy these kinds of games. So, Battlecon Unleashed is absolutely the, the biggest system. And we don't know what its future is going to look like, but now it's in fourth edition. We got a review copy of Unleashed, and it's a marvelous sort of omnibus capper to the fourth edition. We, I don't know what's going to be happening going forward. Exceed is not really to my taste, but there's new sets coming out all the time and new, new licenses. And Sacro Arms is going to be localized soon, so yay! I am very happy to have access to all these games, although Exceed is definitely the odd person out. And I still think the fault is mine. I need to find better ways to introduce these games to people. But I'm looking forward to helping Walker explore the space and letting him, you know, get comfortable with a character. And so I don't have to be the one to say, actually, this keyword that you needed to look up over here means something else entirely. So that was Sacro Arms. And those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, this is going to be an excessively long news segment. Buckle up, people. There's a company called Arcade One Up, and they bring out all these miniature, like, sort of arcade cabinets, right? And they have, like, Pac-Man and Star Wars ones. Anyway, they're on Kickstarter right now with something called the Infinity Table. And they have all of the board game digital stuff that's out there now, so you can play it on, like, on a coffee table type uh, layout. Seems fairly interesting. A lot of Monopoly and Scrabble and stuff there that they're showing, but... Anyway, anyway, anything that pushes that sort of technology forward, I'm all for. And that's all the news and why it doesn't matter. Sorry we took so long. Now, on to the feature game, which is Castles of Tuscany. Mark, let us know about this game. The Castles of Tuscany was published this year by Alia and by Stefan Feld. Of course, I repeat myself, if it's published by Alia, it's probably by Stefan Feld. 
This is kind of sort of a spiritual successor to his 2011 release, Castles of Burgundy, which has some visual touchstones and, you know, several words in common with the title. And really, the design history of Steffenfeld is a very long, very rich one. He's designed a lot of Euro games over the years, many of them published by Alia. He first burst onto the scene, I think, with Notre Dame and in the Year of the Dragon in 2007. And for what it's worth, uh, setting aside the Castles of Tuscany, those are still my favorite Steffenfeld designs. And he definitely settled into the kind of Euro design which is now described somewhat, sometimes derisively, sometimes positively, as point salad. The kind of game where, well, you get some set collection over here, and while you are filling columns and rows over here, and while you get a couple points every time you place one of these tiles, and oh, you're collecting these cards too, and every time you get a card, you get a couple points from that. And then there's this track up here, and you might want to go up that track, but there's this other track over here. It works a little bit differently, and the two tracks are kind of related, but you get a couple points every time you go up that. Anyway, the epitome to this for me is actually Trajan, and it was actually when playing Trajan when I realized, I think I'm done with Stefan Feld. And sure enough, I've been avoiding a lot of his designs since, because in the realm of point salad euros, you played one, and to my eyes, you mostly played them all. Which is why I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the Castles of Tuscany when it was announced, but when it was released, I gave it a shot, and now here we're reviewing it. So Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in the Castles of Tuscany? So in the Castle of Tuscany, when you open up the box the first time, you just let the black hole die away as it sucks the rest of the theme that wasn't there in the first place away. So what you're doing during this game is that there's three scoring rounds and you're getting a big scoring dump in those three rounds because you're you're acquiring this uh, sort of like point income and it, it stays this, you know, you keep it keeps getting bigger each round and, and then in the three scoring phases, it adds to your score. And you're sort of deciding on your turn, what are you going to do first? Are you going to try to get the cards first and then pick tiles depending on the cards you have, missing out on key tiles that you might get? Or are you going to pick the tiles and hope for the best and that you might get the cards that you need? That's fairly to the point. It's an Are you going to be the most efficient and you'll win? So this is a tile-laying game that is, I think, safe to say much, much simpler than most of Steffenfeld's other outputs, certainly of the past few years. This is very much in the same vein as, as I said, something like Attica by Marcel-André Casasola-Merkel, or other kinds of very simple tile layers where it's not a function of there are seven different currencies and you need to pay a whole bunch of things in order to get these out. The entire point of the game is to drop these tiles, which is to and drop these buildings. And I have to say that when I first read the rules, I was very surprised by how simple and straightforward it was. Once I got past how confusing the rulebook is, we both find the rulebook not terribly well done. It just throws different phrases for the same thing around, right? So it calls it one thing one time and then switches once in a while. And the organization's a bit off. It talks about bonus tiles in a strange place. I was completely unprepared for how much I enjoyed the Castles of, of Tuscany. I was expecting a flavorless, relatively banal kind of tiling thing where I'm just churning out these things. And or something that was overwrought, because I find a lot of Steffenfeld's designs overwrought. And I found the Castles of Burgundy overwrought. Well, on that, on that, I have a little, it is very much like the Castles of, of Burgundy in, in many ways. And I was going to ask you, like, do you feel as though the market is leaning towards games that are 60 minutes or less nowadays, right? Well, I feel, so in the past couple of weeks, I feel we've been, we've had a very, very good run of lightweight Euros that are very accessible and don't overstay their welcome. And they're not very similar games, but just looking over the list of the things that we've played over the past couple of weeks, things like Gods Love Dinosaurs, things even like Cosmic Colonies, which you weren't a huge fan of, and it's not brilliant, but at least it was it was very pleasant. Uh, even things like Fierabond, just very, very simple, very quick, a couple clever things, and there you go. And I don't know if this is the market shifting back, because it feels nostalgic to me. This game, despite the fact that it, that Castles of Tuscany was published this year, it feels like a throwback. It feels like something that would have been published 20 years ago by Alia. Here's this incredibly simple tiling thing that's going to last an hour, but is, but is clever and fun and diverting. There you go. You're off to the races. It's true. And if you love Castle Burgundy, a lot of the stuff is still is there. It just has none of the confusing yellow tiles where it has all the different, Ugh. you know, uh, game manipulations and scoring things at the end of the game. The brown tiles that are all the buildings that have special abilities, they're not there anymore. There's no trade tiles. There's no like black tiles where the depot. So, 
the, the ones that you could buy. So in which case there's no coins either. And there's no dice mark. Yes. There's no dice. You're drawing these cards. And instead we get these red tiles, which are interesting. We still have the workers and you still get the bonus for completing the colors on your map. But the key part is that there's only three turns instead of five. <laughs> right. And there's very minimal end game scoring. So once you're done, it's a quick tally up. You're not, you know, going through all these different tiles. This scores, that scores. There's not three pages of of different tiles that you have to look up between the yellow ones and the brown ones and everything else to try to figure out, you know. So it's very way more accessible than the Castles of Burgundy. You have your one-player board, which has all the information that you need. Great little game. So the things that I didn't like about the Castles of Burgundy were, number one, I felt it was, it was vastly overlong. New players tended to take in excess of two hours for what was essentially just plopping down a whole bunch of tiles on your board. And to, to do, to issue another comparison, actually, I want to go back to Gaia Project. I desperately want to try Gaia Project again, but very much a lot of my criticisms about Gaia Project are the same. It feels to me like much ado about nothing. A lot of economic wrangling just to plop out some buildings. Whereas in simpler games like Castles of Tuscany or Gods of Dinosaurs or games of that nature, you want to focus on the tile laying, not on the deep economic wrangling underneath to be able to afford to put out these tiles. Don't get me wrong. I like some economic wrangling now and then. It's enjoyable. I like Barrage. I like some more complicated Euros. But at the end of the day, I do also appreciate when games are able to do it in a slightly more clean way. And you talked about how the dice are gone in the Castles of Burgundy. And honestly, the dice were one of the worst offenders, I thought, in terms of both inflating the game length and in terms of reducing the decision space. Because you're looking at all these puzzly combinations of, well, I've got a two. That means that I guess I could draft this kind of tile, but I can't build one of those with a six. Okay, well, what if I drafted a six and built it with a two? Oh, that that I can do. Okay. And so that takes a lot of calculation, and that takes a lot of processing and, and visual correspondence with a whole bunch of different shades of yellow and different shades of brown and all those other things. But it narrows your choices. It doesn't open up the field. It just constrains what you're able to do. And that part I really didn't like about Castle Burgundy. Yeah, it's way more forgiving in castle burgundy you roll your two dice and those are the two numbers you're locked in on and you can't do anything else uh in castle of tuscany you can use two cards of any color it means in the workers or any color and marble anyway it's it's a lot more forgiving and it doesn't lock you in every turn the other thing that i do that, that i find and this is this is to segue back into Tassel, castles of tuscany that i really appreciate because I felt const so constrained by my dice and the specific combinations involved in the Castles of Burgundy, I did not pay attention to what other people were doing. I didn't really care what other people could or could not build because I was just limited by what I could draft with the, with the dice anyway. In Castles of Tuscany, there's not a huge quantity of player uh, interaction, but there is a fair amount. You look at other people's boards and they figure, okay, no one is in a position to build that valuable red or blue or dark green tile because those are the rarer tiles. Uh, the gray and the browns and the yellows, there's a lot of those floating around, so you don't really have to seize on them usually. Sometimes, yes, but usually. And so if I desperately need to build that red tile, but I'm not really in a position to grab it yet, I can look at other people's boards and try to make a heuristic risk assessment about whether or not I can leave it to sit there and figure out what other tokens people need. Maybe take it from them, even if that's not the one that I need the most. And so I really, because the systems didn't get in my way, I spent more time looking at other people's boards, not just focusing on the combinations of my dice. Sure. Well, I was going to make a point, not to the opposite, but that's what I, I'm, that I was missing from Castles of Burgundy was the fact that because your player board in Castle Burgundy is so big, you can almost build any tile. So when you looked out of the board, you had to get those tiles right away. And I didn't feel that in Tuscany at all. It was, I see. you sort of, you could have just waited. Like you said, you just look over. It's like, well, there's no way you can build that red one. I can just leave it there and I don't have to worry about it. Whereas in, in Burgundy, it's like, okay, I, I have to get that now before it's too late. I can't leave that. So I think that was more interaction. Whereas Hmm. I guess it's a different way to look at it. I agree with what you're saying, but I guess it's just different ways you can parse player interaction. It's also worth noting, for the sake of context, you have played a lot more of the Castles of Burgundy than I have. So this is possibly the kind of nuances that you get more exposure to once you've overcome the limitations of the system. Because unambiguously, and this is not a criticism, Burgundy has more system mastery to it than Castles of Tuscany does. Castles of Tuscany is so incredibly straightforward. You have only three things you can do on your turn. Draw cards, pull a tile, 
or build a tile. And building a tile is simple. You pay two cards of the matching color. That's it. You're done. That's the game. Then it's just a question of navigating the different tile bonuses and figuring out what point uh, point scores you're going to compete for. It's a simple but not simplistic game. And one of the ways that you really get that degree of variety and a little bit more engagement is through the bonus tiles. Right at the start of the game, you get to pick a bonus tile, which is going to do things like increase your supply of tiles that you can hold on to. doesn't increase the rate at which you draw, but it increases your availability to store them. Increase the rate at which you draw cards, or increase the rate at which you get special bonus income. That's how I'll lump in the other three. And honestly, I have, over the course of different plays, consciously chosen to emphasize different bonuses at different times. And it really does serve to differentiate play from play. And so the simplest little details do manage to have uh, an amount of payoff in terms of play uh, play variety. Yeah, I have the same thing. Love the red tiles, the ability to personalize your own player board and sort of, you know, have your own little strategy and, and I did the same, like you said, tried different things every game. I really liked how that worked. Part of me wishes that there had been yet more variety in terms of customizing your board, in terms of almost building an engine. But the other part of me thinks that that would not have been compatible with the kind of game that Tuscany is. And it might have undercut the, the, the central fluidity and accessibility and joy of the simplicity of it. So I'm not really sure. Maybe this is the kind of thing that an expansion could introduce. And then you could have, you know, the base game and the expansion. I don't know. Uh, that's probably a design challenge for people smarter than I to resolve. I like the, there's good combos to make too as well, cause you have, you had, uh, you could collect marble, which let, gave you another turn. You could get castles, which let you pull tiles and not have to pay for them. And you can sort of work all these together because there's a very emphasis on getting points at certain times. Cause like I said, there's three scoring rounds and you got really got to make sure that your one green score is really high. So when the red score hits, you're piling in a lot of points. That's another area that I simultaneously like and wish a little bit more had been done with, because as most things you do give you point income, which will score three times over the course of the round. And indeed, a very strong play is to, in the first era before the first scoring round, complete a large block of territories, which will give you a full six points, rather than a single territory, which will just give you one. So you're effectively doubling the point value of three different territories. If you're able to do that before the first scoring round, you're doing pretty well. If you're able to do that in a bunch of other things, you're doing really well. But by the same token, I kind of wish that there had been some other like genuine trade-offs to do. Am I going to do this thing to get myself point income, or am I going to do this other thing to get me one-time points? But then, again, I feel that that would have undercut the, sim the central simplicity of it, and maybe I'm just wanting complexity for the sake of complexity. Because at the end of the, the day, scoring one point in era one or scoring three points in era three are fundamentally the same. So if you just introduce more noise into the system, you might be going down that slippery slope into point salad to no real differentiation. True. One point I have here, let's cover it now, is the fact that I like the overall, you know, the dumping every three rounds of the points. It's just the the... The tile placement, every time you place a tile, you'd normally get, you know, one point, or if you, you know, finished off an area, you'd get more. I, just felt, I felt that part was very weak for some reason. I just either felt cumbersome or tedious or, or the fact that you could never, you know, modify it at all. It just seemed, you know, the same thing over and over. I just, it just didn't do it for me, I guess. You mean the variable scoring? The fact that a tile would be worth one by itself, two and, uh... That's right. Yeah. Just, just the, every time you play a tile, you get points somehow. It just, that part of the game felt weak. Huh, you would have rathered some other kind of income? Or? No, no, I, I just wish there was a way to modify it. Like you said, like say if you get a bonus tile, that would increase those points. Or there was, I see. There was some, some other mechanism there that would change that up every so often. Well, there's vague whispers of that in the agricultural uh, tiles. The agricultural tiles is the only type of tile that interacts with scoring directly. All the other things we've talked about, red tiles, red tiles add to your player board. Gray tiles give you marble, which give you more turns, things like that. But the only ones that give you flat, direct points are the green tiles. Every time you put a green tile, you get a bonus point for every type of agriculture represented on the tile that is not already in that group of green tiles. But as I said before, it's not as if placing those tiles is often a substantial trade-off. It's not like doing that incurs an opportunity cost other than any other kind of building than you might seek to put down. But again... I don't know if that's asking the game to be something that it isn't, but I can suffice to say that I, I, I see whispers of, of what the more complicated version of T Castles of Tuscany might have been. And part of me wonders if that design is a viable design as well. Something perhaps, you know, the direct midpoint between Tuscany and Burgundy. I don't know. Maybe I'm just. Sure. While we're on the, t while we're on the topic of the tiles, I just love how it works to time the whole game out. 
the fact that there are three piles, so you can look around and see if the round is about to end. The fact that it diversifies the pool, you know, so there's an even number of tiles going out because uh, there's a pool of eight that you're going to choose from during the game. If you pick one from there, then you're taking one from one of your own personal piles and putting it back into the pool. So, you know, it keeps, you know, relatively balanced. So, you know, the, ne the next person in line is always getting my tiles and the next person is always getting his tiles and they're going to get a balance all the time. So I think that's a fantastic little mechanism. It's probably one of my favorite mechanical elements of the game, managing the tile draw, managing the pool, dealing with not having what you want and dealing with the artificial scarcity that the game imposes on it. Because as I mentioned, dark green, red, and blue tiles are vastly more rare than the other kinds of tiles. And the game knows, uh, my initial concern was, well, what if I just happen to be the one who randomly pulls from the supply all the red tiles just before my turn, especially in the early game, won't that be unbalancing? But as you say, the way the pool is managed, whenever I draw a tile, I replenish it with something from my fixed pool of player color tiles that were set aside during setup. So that means, generally speaking, the person downstream from me has access to a fixed pool, who in turn feeds the next person downstream. Now, there are ways to overcome this, especially if, as I say, the next player doesn't need that kind of tile. They're probably going to pass on it, but that's fine. There's also the marble, which lets you take another turn additionally, but that's why marble's good. You can just seize on something that you introduce to the pool and get to it before anyone else does. And it's just a really great way to make sure that there's still going to be a floating market of tiles. Some are going to be in demand and some others, but without making it purely random and purely just a function of, oh, one of the rare ones came up now, lucky me. It's true. And then I was interested to see that there was no solo mode at all it's in this in this day and age. Throwback. That like I, I said, it's a I throwback. That everything has to have a solo mode and there's no campaign. <laughs> I'm wondering if there's a reason for that. I'm wondering if, because we've talked about the fact that when you play a game solo, you're sort of doing it repetitiously, like over and over again. I'm wondering if if you'll see how similar every game is going to be or or the fact that every turn is, you know what I mean? That you could, you'd be able to puzzle it out very quickly if you're playing games over and over by yourself. So I'm wondering if they it was a conscious decision not to put a solo mode in this game. I agree with you. I think all things being equal, a solo mode would make Tuscany feel a little bit like some of your criticisms of The Voyages of Marco Polo. You look at the board, you have to make your plan, you stick to your plan, that's it. Because I've been talking about how the variety introduced by the random tile draw and the subtle influences of player interaction, and also one thing we haven't mentioned, the subtle influences of how you set up your player boards at the very top of the game, which creates color blocks and which influences what tiles you'll be able to place early in the game and what tiles you'll be placing later. All of those things in a solo mode would probably just make it seem like you just have to decide a rigid plan on what tiles to place and when. And that, I think, would have some degree of appeal, but wouldn't be nearly as charming as Tuscany ends up being. Some games are too simple to have a solo mode, I guess, once you strip out the player interaction from them. Agreed. To sum up my feelings about the Castles of Tuscany, I was not prepared to enjoy it. I was not prepared to find it engaging, and I was not prepared to find it even just a, an interesting variation on a design that I thought was interesting, but I didn't like. True. I was, I was not looking forward to playing it for those, not myself, but playing it with you for those reasons. Cause how, how much you disliked Castles of Burgundy and just how long it was. And I was looking through the rule book. It's like, this looks like almost exactly the same game until I like saw how more streamlined it was. And then when you enjoyed it, it was that much better. Interestingly, speaking personally, I don't think that the comparisons to Burgundy are quite as strong as you've identified. Like, some of them are just paper thin. Like, there are workers in Burgundy and there are workers in Tuscany, but they do radically different things. A lot of it is visual. A lot of it is just about the fact that you're still putting out tiles. But past that, I think the comparison... Yeah, you can focus on the comparisons or underemphasize the comparisons. It's really up to you. No, I'm just saying, if, for people who like Burgundy, it, it, it gives you the same feel. It uses the same... Uh, the same pieces, and they roughly do the same thing that they do in Burgundy. I suppose that's fair. But ultimately, I really think that in terms of 
accessible, satisfying Euro games that would probably be, we didn't try it with any non-gamer family members. But honestly, this is the kind of thing that I might be willing to show to a non-gamer family member that might be interested in trying one of these things. Just as I did with, honestly, uh, Notre Dame and in the Year of the Dragon. The year those came out, I spent uh, a Christmas with my family and I showed my mother and I showed my brother-in-law in the Year of the Dragon. And we had a great deal of fun with it. And I think that the Castles of Tuscany is roughly pitched at the same level. And you can enjoy it with gamers, you can enjoy it with non-gamers. It's not really uh, an, an intro game in terms of the, the way that it works, but it's so accessible and clean and fast. I'd be happy to plop this down in front of anybody. I really think it's a winner. I 100% agree. I had it upstairs today preparing for this, and if she had shown any interest at all, then I would have you know, started it right then. I was like, already in my head. It was like, okay, if she you know asks about Your it... Partner, or, yeah. Or, yeah, my partner says, you know, well, let's give this a try. And I would not even hesitate. I said, this is easy to teach. Solid light Euro game, like the kind that you would see 20 years ago. A radical departure, I think, from Steffenfeld's recent output. I'm a big fan of the Castles of Tuscany, and I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in a light tile layer. I'd play it any time. So that's going to do it for this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope very much to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.